I have to tell you about where I recently encountered jokes in the their relation to the unconscious. Do you want to hear it? I absolutely want to hear it. All right. So I normally, if I'm doing housework or whatever, I like to have some sort of television on that I don't have to pay particularly good attention to. It's just like in the background. And often, you know, because I'm a child of the 90s, it will be from around that around that time. And for some reason up here where our only option is Amazon Prime, I was looking for something. And about two weeks ago, I started inexplicably watching Allie McBeal, which is all about therapy. Okay, so we we have been, uh, we were listening to, we were like doing this with Frasier a little while ago, yeah. all of that stuff. Tracy Ullman is the therapist on Allie McBeal. It's, it's, it's completely wild, whatever. Anyway, la la la, I'm doing like whatever it is I'm doing. And all of a sudden I look over and Calista Flockhart, who plays Allie McBeal, is holding an actual, co- you know, the, the, the like old, the blue, the little blue and gold editions of Freud, the freestanding ones. We, whenever we went to college, we, or, or people of our generation all had the little blue ones of, uh, you know, civilization and its discontents or whatever. And she's talking to her roommate and she's like, you're an exhibitionist or whatever it is. Like I looked it up. This whole episode is called The Dirty Joke. All right. I obviously went back and watched it like a bunch of times after this and woke. I tried to, I was like, I want to like wake Patrick up because it was like late at night, which is when I get some of, you know, I I, like wander around the house and do things while Patrick is sleeping. And so here is, here's this icon of like nineties backlash to feminism, Allie McBeal holding up um, jokes in their relation to the unconscious, talking to her roommate, being like Jacques with, with Freud as armor and her roommate is like, oh, whatever. Like that guy was all, you know, everything was about sex for him, blah, 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 blah. And he's, she's like, that guy invented psychoanalysis. And which made me laugh. But then her roommate volleys back. He invented psychoanalysis with a wet dream. The dream of Irma's injection. And I was like, I'm sorry, am I actually hallucinating? Yeah. Like the dream of Irma's injection <laughs> showed up on primetime TV. Yeah in the late 90s. And throughout it, she's clutching the joke book. Um, it's it's absolutely wild. And it, it keeps going on like that. Um, anyway, I, I really yeah. thought that I was like having a break with reality. David E. Kelly doing a liberal arts education flex, being like, yeah, I read this shit. And then, I so I called my mother the next day and I was like, mom, this happened. And she was like, clearly some part of you remembered this and you knew that you were going to talk to Ben Wergaft about jokes. <laughs> and that is why you decided to revisit this late 90s. <laughs> like, um, you know, dramedy with incredibly uh, retrogressive gender and sexual politics. <laughs> so... so- there you are. Amazing. Amazing. Oh man, it is the it's the the coldest and freshest cold open <laughs> one could ever ask for.
listening to Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm Patrick Weinfield. And today I am delighted to introduce our special guest, Ben Wergaft. Ben is an intellectual historian, writer, and editor. He did his doctoral work at Berkeley and then worked his way through a variety of adjunct and postdoctoral positions, first at Berkeley and then at the New School for Social Research, then received National Science Foundation funding for further training and research in the anthropology of science at MIT back in his hometown of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, Ben has published a really wide range of books, which include Jews at Williams, Inclusion, Exclusion, and Class at a New England Liberal Arts College, Thinking in Public, Strauss, Levinas, Arendt, Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food, and now um, coming up in September, Ways of Eating, which is an introduction to food history and anthropology, co-authored with his mom, Mary White, and you better believe we are going to get into the question of co-writing with one's mother before this episode is over. But also on a more personal note, I've known Ben for a long time. Um, We met long ago in some way that I do not really remember, except that it was mediated by our our shared alma mater of Swarthmore, except we didn't overlap there. Um, But I I feel like I've just known Ben forever. Um, He's a dear friend who shares so many interests with both of us from psychoanalysis and critical theory to hiking and definitely, um, at least for me and Ben, a decades-long obsession with an obscure sci-fi series that only he and I seem to care about or remember. Um, But most saliently for this episode, Ben is, um, as a wide swath of Twitter already knows, an undisputed master of puns and wordplay to the point that he has even published an essay in the Times Literary Supplement called The Punning of Reason. And uh, when when he puns online, which is frequently, um, there is a rush sometimes to go, Ben, <laughs> Ben. <laughs> um, without further ado, uh, Ben Wergaft, welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, Abby, thank you so much. And I'm honored to join you guys. And um Look, I've learned so much from both of you over the years, in addition to enjoying years and years of friendship together. Um, and um, we should talk about puns and we should talk about jokes yeah. uh, as well. And we should talk about Freud. And I really want to share with you um, my favorite joke. Please. Please. And um, it's going to be slightly embarrassing. Okay. So I want, I let's, want our listeners to know that um, whatever reading I do and writing I do, I mostly have the affect of a Muppet. And I'm going to, in that spirit, <laughs> um, deliver the following joke. And imagine, if you will, that there are... And Abby and Patrick, I think I have told you this joke. Okay. I think I've told you this joke on one of our visits in Maine before. But um, you'll have to bear with me. Uh, they're two whales. And if you will imagine these whales, I think they're humpback whales. In fact, I think that they're the humpback whales from, from the Star Trek movie. Um, and they're sitting at a bar. The whales are sitting at a bar. There's a bartender, normal human bartender. Um, wait, what would the whales be drinking? Tell me. 
But what do you think the Wilson Briney Martini? Frog, yeah, yeah. Okay, these are great. Okay, mm. they're, that's what they're drinking. And one one of the whales has had too many grogs. And um, uh, whale says to the other, one whale says to the other whale. <laughs> and then, okay, so the second whale, second whale looks kind of astonished. And turns to the bartender and says, don't listen to anything he's saying. He's drunk. <laughs> now, th- this is, I, 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 this has been my favorite joke for years and years and years. And, and I, I reading, rereading Freud's book um, for this, for this conversation, I, I was enlightened as to why. Um, and Freud, one of the things that Freud tells us about jokes is in a sense that, um, the, the extensive content of the joke, the, the thing that the joke seems to be about, is actually a kind of a pretext, often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have various social functions keyed to that, that, that pretext. But basically, it's a chance to be silly. Yeah, it, It's a way of liberating nonsense. It's a way of liberating a kind of play impulse that we lose when, as children, these rational impulses and the impulse to be rational together start to impose themselves. And I love this joke because it is it is not about anything other than making whale sounds for your friends. Yeah, and faces. Also the faces. Yeah. Also the faces. Um, I, 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 and I think that honestly, um, you know, most most of the time that I pun on Twitter, and I've brought with me for this conversation some of my worst j- recent jokes on Twitter. Oh, I'm um, so bad. And I, I know Abby, I'm sorry, and but <laughs> really, um, and we should talk too about why people think puns are bad. Why, yes. you know, Samuel Johnson thought that puns were horrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like you hear that like puns are the lowest form of humor uh, thing floating around. But Ben, okay, I want to hear your Twitter puns. Truly, I'm, I'm saying I, I, I do, um, and I want. I, I also want to read a passage from the punning of reason. But before we get dive headlong into like the jokes book and into to puns and wordplay and all of that stuff, um, can you tell us a little bit about your own path to psychoanalysis? It's a question we often like to pose to guests um, because just we never know what sort of answers are are going to come out. And it also just kind of illustrates like just the sort of swath of ways that people get engaged in psychoanalytic thinking practice as patients, as clinicians. Um, and I know that you have an, an interesting history with analysis. I, I, I hope it's interesting. Um, at the very, at the very least and at the very most it's mine. I mean, I, I should say, for the purposes of this 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 conversation, um, I have, as of this coming fall, been in formal analysis for twenty years, um, and um, I began in my second year of graduate school at Berkeley, and um, I had been planning to do it for several years, and I was waiting. At that time, in my I guess early to mid twenties, I I um, wanted to find a place where I would be in the same spot for at least a few years. And at that age, I probably thought that analysis would be about three years. I thought that I would be in analysis for a few years. Um, I come to it 
like I come to a lot of things through my family. Um, and I, I sometimes joke that I'm a, a failed Nepo baby. Um, but in the case of psychoanalysis, um, uh, I came to it both out of personal need and in many ways out of knowing it was there and knowing how to access it mm-hmm. because of my family experience. Um, by the time I was in college and still in therapy all the time, um, I was starting to get a sense that psychoanalysis would be a natural next step. And um, I spoke with people who were doing both psychotherapy and formal analysis. And one of them said the magic words, which was your suffering and your intelligence suggest it, which of course appeals to my ego enormously. Um, <laughs> That's how they get you. Uh, yeah, exactly. And um, I uh, had an interview interview is probably what I'd call it. It was a consultation with the analyst Anton Chris in Cambridge, who um, I remember sitting in his office um, as he quoted in Latin the episode in the Aeneid in which Dido is cursing Aeneas's departure. And I'm just thinking, this is a charismatic, this is like the charismatic megafauna of moments in my life. This is going to, in some sense, nudge me towards this decision, which I was able to make when I was a graduate student at Berkeley because what was then San Francisco's Psychoanalytic Institute, I think it's changed its name to the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis, had a low-fee clinic that Mm -hmm. I could access. And I, I lucked into getting, after interviewing some analysts, a wonderful analyst who in his first career, was also an English professor, um, which I didn't really know at the time. It was one of the very best decisions I ever made in my life. I've benefited from it enormously. I haven't spoken to the family issue, which is that um, not only have both of my parents been in analysis at one point or another of their lives, my parents are or were academics. My father, um, after he uh, my father was denied tenure as an intellectual historian uh, and then became a psychotherapist and then completed two-thirds of an analytic training later in his life. So there's a sense in which this was in my family. This was uh, in the atmosphere around me. My father, as a historian, was a kind of latter-day part of the psychohistory mm. movement. And uh, there was a sense in which this was so accessible to me. Um, that it felt, well, I'm going to quote, I, I remember having coffee with Ben Kafka like a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And um, the one line of his that I remember, because it was such a, I think, a good line was, you know, in life, nothing is perfectly determined. Everything is either overdetermined or underdetermined. And um, <laughs> I was like, so, so like that Goldilocks point you want it, but you never get it. Yeah. You never get it. And of course this is coming from a guy. I, I probably had asked him, so what's it like to be called Kafka? Right. Uh, so he probably, his answer was probably, well, nothing in life is very, so good. It was a good answer. <laughs> Kafka asked. Yeah. It was a good answer. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's my story into psychoanalysis. The twist is that for the last 20 years, I have been on the couch or on the phone four days a week. Mm-hmm. And um, I 
consequently did not study psychoanalysis as an intellectual historian in the fashion that I thought I would. I, I thought that I might well write a dissertation that dealt with psychoanalysis in some way, shape, or form, and I decided not to because I felt that I had a propensity to intellectualization, and I wanted, and my analyst wanted, my anal- my analysis to be something different. Mm. Um, and I think that many people, many people who are academics, academics in training, go into psychoanalysis expecting some amount of the technical register of psychoanalysis to show up in in the treatment. And this was completely not the case and is not the case in my treatment. Um, And although I can't speak for my analyst in any way, shape, or form, I think that he's someone for whom the jargon of psychoanalysis is a way of not doing psychoanalysis. Um, So I always experience myself as being somewhat outside say, academic conversations Mm -hmm. about psychoanalytic theory um, in various ways, even though it's obviously in me. And I totally Mm -hmm. want to talk about the way in which I think psychoanalysis has affected my methods as a researcher, writer, and thinker, because it totally has. Yeah. It occurs to me here just to to sort of gloss uh, a couple things to, to complement what you're saying and with an eye towards some, some questions that our audience might have, right? I, I think it's absolutely the case just to, to underscore this, that psychoanalysis, to the extent to which there are psychoanalytic institutes in various places, uh, is accessible to people or can be accessible to people through a sliding scale, adjusted fee, and other sort of options. Uh, and, and just to sort of gloss this for people, I think it's... And in some ways, perhaps this resonates with the question of like how much academic jargon do you need to have? Do you need to come yeah. from a, uh, a certain family romance or like be the symptom of academic parents, as it were? Like, I'm not, I'm not, not knocking that. I love that stuff and I love you, Ben. I'm just, I mean, but what I'm saying here is uh, for people who are like, and I know that people, we've asked, people have asked us about this, are interested in pursuing a type of therapy that is not necessarily um, cognitive behavioral. Uh, or that is not necessarily just about medication management, but about, in, involves talking about meanings and, and and experiences that maybe not the most immediately present, but happen in their life history and recur. Uh, there are, I would encourage them just to check out to see if there's an analytic institute in, yeah. their, in their area. And oftentimes, psychoanalysts who are going through a, uh, a training or people who are training, uh, people who are in training to become psychoanalysts will, as part of their sort of service requirements, but as part of the broader institution, of the, uh, uh, the, the mandate of the institution will take on people for a nominal fee. Uh, you know, healthcare may or may not get involved in that at that point. But the point here is that there is, there yeah. is accessibility to this way of thinking. You may not necessarily get, yeah, I, don't, I don't know, like, uh, quotes for, for, uh, of Dido damning Rome with the future advent of Hannibal from Aeneid Book 4, but you will get something and, and I you think, might yeah, not want that also. you might not want that yeah <laughs> and in fact that 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 itself may be an intellectualization or something else but so, so i i, I kind of want to like point to that um and i think we that that is a cool thing that's available yeah. and i kind of want to just sort of like showcase that as so it's yeah you know, i remember yeah. that blowing my mind when i because i was in grad school in in new york and i thought about it very very seriously um at you know a, a difficult time in my life and uh in fact my therapist was like you can either go to the gym for an hour, five days a week, or you can go into analysis. And which of those things do you really think you need right more? And I was like, the gym. Yeah. <laughs> Tough but fair. Pat, I, this is incredibly important what you're bringing up. And I, um, 
I want people to know that psychoanalysis is more accessible than they probably think. Yeah. Definitely. And I want people to know that um, I was, you know, trying to live on $15,000 in the Bay Area in the aughts and on and in analysis and that a combination of the low fee clinic and in, health insurance made this possible. Um, I had well, probably one of the most inexpensive analyses one could imagine. Um, and um, to some ex extent, that's subvented by the material conditions of the life of the analyst mm -hmm. um, who mm -hmm. is in a position to offer low fee, right? So this is related to issues that have to do with generational experience and um, what an older or younger analyst may be able to offer because of their relationship with things like real estate. Um, and so, and there, there are lots of material conditions that play a part. But this is also like in many areas of my life, I am an insider's insider. Mm. Um, in academia, I was, there's this way in which I always want people to not treat me as a model for things. And I want things to be available to other people that have been available to me yeah. because that's more just and more equitable. Yeah. And um, I, I don't ever want people to look at me as a writer and think that... Um, this guy's seeming success means that he's making a living on his writing or that he's doing things that other people can copy. And I, because I don't want other people to make mistakes <laughs> that get them into various kinds of trouble. And I also want in, in, in practical ways, the things that I've been able to do in my life to be available to people who don't have backgrounds like mine. that is, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that your capacity for puns is available to just everybody, but there is a, a sort of democratic underpinning to the jokes book, right? That we all need this sort of release of pressure. Um, I mean, there's this very hydraulic um, model going on in this book, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but so let me, let me uh, use that as my like not perfect segue to saying, you know, we wanted to have you on this podcast for so many reasons, but mostly, mostly because of the puns, Ben. And, um, and so <laughs> I want, I want, um, to ask you a little bit about your own relationship to puns and punning, but I also want for our audience to read, uh, before you answer that, a little snippet from your essay, The Punning of Reason. Um, and if I, if I uh, mangle any, there's, Ben is always working in like a million languages at once. So if I mangle any of it, you know, that's on me. Uh, so this is me quoting Ben in The Punning of Reason. I pun compulsively. Puns are my constant companions, a floating cloud of potential associations superimposed on the field of linear communication. It is as if I cannot stop touching the words. I read ruach and it becomes rauch from the Hebrew for wind to the German for smoke. 
Some words summon the punchlines to jokes I haven't made yet, and I grin inwardly. The Japanese expression itadakimasu, an expression of thanks for a meal to come, makes me think itadakimasu, as a hundred books of puns destined for use as bathroom reading a test. I'm not alone. There is, in fact, a neurological condition characterized by compulsive punning, originally called Witzelsucht, or joke-seeking, by Hennen Oppenheimer, who identified it in the late 19th century. I swear I don't have it. <laughs> I was visiting Kyoto's Fushimiyanari shrine with a friend who told me that the Japanese word for pun is oyaji gyagu, or old guy gag. Puns are the jokes older men tell. Wordplay does not float free from culture. I could keep reading, but instead I would rather ask you, Ben, tell us, your, your, your puns, I feel like are so, they're not identical with you, but when I think of you, I think about your relationship to language and to wordplay and, and to puns um, and, and to puns in multiple languages. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? whether it's how you got there or how you think about it or any of those things. Oh, Abby, thank you so much. Um, I need to correct myself. So, so um, I was actually incorrect in my translation of Witzelsucht in that essay. Oh. Um, so uh, Witzelsucht uh, is um, more properly an addiction to oh. jokes. Mm. Um, and I had, um, I think it was an entirely natural mistranslation on my part to assume that sucht was from suchen or to seek, sure. you know, jokes, oh, yeah. joke That's seeking. Um, yeah, um, but uh, I think a native German speaker corrected me recently, saying, "No, in fact, this is addiction. This is a, this is so, which is even better, actually." Witzel sucht is joke, and Hermann Oppenheimer, of course, would 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 want to identify this as a kind of brain problem that some people seem to have, mm. and. Um, is it possible that I have it? Of course, it's entirely possible that I have it, but I'm, I'm, I'm protesting, I think. Hopefully, I do not have it. Um, and, of course, it's vaguely embarrassing and abject to be associated with puns in the minds of one's friend, but I think that, that, that that's also great. I think it's, I think it's, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. Lovingly. So, I was, I was raised with cultural artifacts that are all about punning. Mm -hmm. I was, um, I, I often joke that I was raised with the popular culture of the 90s, but it was the 1890s. <laughs> as, as, a, as a note, as I say this, I'll say that, you know, the funny thing about Freud's book of jokes is that he, the meaning of the pun seems to float throughout the book. Yeah. And he doesn't see, he has not very nice things to say about puns as a form of low humor, but he also calls a lot of things jokes that seem to me more primarily puns. Yeah. 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 Um, like and in fact, I, I I could I could talk about those if this is an appropriate moment to get into that. But but yeah. So yeah, I'll just gonna, I'm just going to intervene for for a minute to to do a little bit of ground clearing vis a vis Please. the the book that we're sort of talking about, which is without uh, naming it. Yes, without please. naming it. Yeah, the book that shall not be named, but now I will is uh, Freud's jokes and their relationship to the unconscious it's sometimes translated as the joke and its relationship to the unconscious this this issue of translation is particularly difficult in this yeah. context because uh most of the jokes in this are untranslatable but also deeply unfunny i'll say more about that in a second but suffice it to say this is a book that comes out in 1905 uh freud writes it simultaneous to when he's writing the three essays in sexuality mm -hmm. uh so this is like a really productive 
couple years for Freud, but but also is actually um, what's kind of wild about these two books alongside one another, that is the three essays in the theory of sexuality on the one hand and jokes in their relationship to the unconscious on the other is, as, as Grace Lavery says, they're Freud's unsexiest and unfunniest books respectively. <laughs> and, and I think this is absolutely true. So, so this book is just to sort of like, like say it, it's, I mean, one of the key theses of this, right? Basically what Freud wants to do is one of like, why, why, why do jokes, whence jokes, how are jokes formed? Why are jokes funny? Why do we find things funny? Right. And in, in that sense, it represents a, a continuity of a European tradition that you probably trace back to people like Charles Baudelaire who wrote about laughter, et cetera. But like why we laugh, right? Laughter is this involuntary thing that we do. And suddenly these organs that we use to talk and eat are suddenly barking out these weird noises. And, and Baudelaire's answer just to, thesis is germane, is that we laugh when other people fall down. Because we laugh at the frailty of others. It has a whole, like, there for the grace of God go I thing. There's cruelty to it. Freud is in this tradition of sort of philosophically ruminating on jokes and producing this giant compendium of jokes that he more or less walks through, kind of lays on a, a cutting board like he's a fishmonger and, and, and just guts and, 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 and sort of pulls the little, like, spindly bones out of and otherwise just leaves them smelly out like it's, it's he murders these jokes because but this is sort of proving the point namely that one of Freud's key arguments here is that jokes only really work in the telling of them that unpacking the joke in a, in a fashion that's not economically concise mm-hmm. or or compressed as he says uh undoes the humor of them and more generally too just to say what this book is is, and we can under, we'll read it more closely when we do the standard edition episode about this, and maybe you could come back for that. But uh, is it's of a piece with this period of Freud's life in which he's doing two things. One, he's starting to turn to things that are not about psychopathology, right? So this is actually I think Freud's first major text that's not about hysterics or people with neurotic dysfunctions. And in that sense, you're counting the interpretation of dreams as. In that Basically. sense, it's, it's sort of alongside that, right? Okay. Insofar, insofar as that it's very much like the interpretation of dreams, which, you know, came out in 1900, insofar as that it does two things. One, it takes this phenomenon that is sort of universal and common, right? Namely, dreams or people laughing at jokes. And it points to how actually these things are much more strange than we think. It's weird that we dream. It's weird that we laugh. What's going on with that? So this thing that seems normal. What's the deal with that? What's the deal with that? (laughs) Comedians, why are they so funny? Why are they always getting coffee and cards with Jerry Seinfeld? That type of shit, right? (laughs) It's it's sort of this pivot to, to estrange something that's given and normal to reveal how what's normal is actually very, well, strange and bizarre. And so in some ways it, 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 it takes something that we might, rather than focusing on the pathological, it defamiliarizes the normal and the universal. The second thing that's going on here, and this is something that Abby's already alluded to vis-a-vis sort of the hydraulic character of the thinking behind uh, this book, is that this is like the book about dreams or like his book on uh, the psychopathology of everyday life, which is about Freudian slips or what he technically calls a parapraxis, they're instantiations of a very recognizable and similar model of how the mind works. And this is a vision of the mind that, you know, numerous commentators have called hydraulic insofar as that basically the psyche does stuff and it's essentially the stuff it does is largely unconscious and serves to maintain a type of homeostasis or to like basically function to like equilibrate psychic pressures or social pressures. So the point just in, in quick pressy 
the fundamental thesis of this book is that looking at jokes gives us an example of how the individual psyche works to discharge pressure mm -hmm. through or, or, or betrays itself by taking convenient passive expression that um, let off some sort of steam. The joke is an icebreaker or the joke is a thing that other people laugh because you said the thing that no one else was going to say, but you said it by accident, right? It also additionally then gets into the sort of the social commentary, the social dimension of the, of the joke, like the way that they function is what he called jests, which I'd like for you to talk more about, or even like this thing called the comic, which almost verges on the Baudelaire territory and becomes like a genre criticism. But for people who are interested in this, it's almost like it's, not, it's a very unfunny book. I remember doing an entire seminar uh, one of the first Freud seminars I took where this professor, I'm not going to name because it's, it's unfunny, but he, he, he like, we read this entire fucking book and nothing. It's long. Nothing it's is funny. There, there are a couple, maybe there are a couple jokes that are like a little bit, but like at the end of it, it was professor, this is the early 2000s. So like performativity or talking about things as performance or going meta was like a big deal. It was like, I would suggest to you that the very unfunniness of this book proves the point And that in fact, the book about jokes is itself a joke and everyone in the seminar room was like really like, like that's okay like i mean like that and a fucking token would get us on the subway at that point but like it, it, it but like so it, it's got this kind of like it, it it's the core thesis is this it's useful insofar as this is how symptoms are formed this is how dreams are formed this is how Freudian slips are formed but the point is like it's it's also this weird compendium of unfunny things that freud finds funny with a particular aspect being their jewishness and the other thing i'll say here too finally just quoting ernest jones right it says that this line i think actually you it comes up in the book that the elliot uh ostinger book you just held up a minute ago right where it's it's like Freud says, Ernest Jones says of Freud that one wouldn't know many things about him as you know, one wouldn't even think he was Jewish except for his fondness of specifically Jewish jokes. So this is the, that, that's, that's all I'll say about this book. Like it's got this material there. This is such a beautiful exposition of um, how Freud comes to this topic, which is that he, he is collecting Jewish jokes for a long time. He thinks that Jewish jokes are really important um, to him personally, especially jokes about the schnorrer or the beggar, who's yeah. a kind of Jewish archetype of humor. Mm -hmm. um, but the way, the image that you used earlier, Pat, of Freud is sort of taking these, these fish and laying them out. He's like a fish, fish dealer. It, it's like, Freud is 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 carping about jokes and he's oh. giving gefilte fish. He's giving us, he's taking the fish and he is, as you're saying, he's eviscerating them. He's telling you how they work and he's 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 gefiltering them and he's explaining why I don't have a gefilter and like why why I keep punning. Um so the but the 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 problem is that it's not funny at all. It's just not funny. No, and I'm going to I'm gonna relate. Uh, here, uh, I think just at, at least a couple of these jokes so that we have, yes, please. We can make this really concrete for our listeners. And um, uh, I'm going to read, I'm, I'm going to read my, this, and this actually is in the key of Jewish humor. I'm going to read uh, a joke that is on page 64 in most editions. Um, and this, a lot of the jokes in the book are about matchmaking, mm -hmm. which is a Jewish Eastern European, mental Europeish, Jewish genre of activity, but also mm -hmm. thus a genre of humor. Um, so let's see. Okay. A, a Shadechin, who's a, a matchmaker, mm -hmm. Shadechin had brought an assistant with him to the discussion about the proposed bride to bear out what he had to say. She's as straight as a pine tree, said the Shadechin. As a pine tree, repeated the echo. And she has eyes that ought to be seen, 
what eyes she has, confirms the echo. And she is better educated than anyone. What an education! It's true that there's one thing, admitted the broker. She has a small hump. And what a hump, the echo confirmed once more. And it's just like... That's the kind of joke we're talking about. Okay, no, Abby yeah. did just laugh, and so did Patrick. I'm, I'm but, laughing at your delivery. Oh no, no but there, there, and there, there's there, this is this is actually a, what I just read is in the category of a joke, yeah. and what what a joke is for Freud <laughs> in the book yeah. to, to the be clear. No, it, yes. you know, it is. It's in it the category is. of a joke because a joke is something that Freud tells us we engage in when we're not happy, but we want to be. Yeah. Um, when, yeah, in other that's words, a beautiful we, way of putting it. Yeah. we don't have the mood of humor, mm-hmm. but we would like to be, to have it. Yeah. And we would like, we, it's a, and, and the, the other things, the comic, um, various other forms of witticism. And I would say puns aren't like jokes in the sense that the joke is, it has a, a formal quality. Mm-hmm. You enter into its almost narrative frame, somebody, and, and you're led through the joke. And there's usually some form of delay in the release of the joke's punchline Mm. that builds it up. And there's um, a point where Freud is trying to explain to us the distinction between jokes and puzzles. And um, he says that puzzles obscure from us and jokes make plain. But that's not entirely true. In fact, jokes build in a certain kind of delay or hesitation in the release of what's supposed to be funny about them. That's the structure of the joke. Mm-hmm. So, so this whole thing about the matchmaker has the structure of a joke um, because, because there's a sense of buildup in it. There are other examples that I want to uh, read because they're, they're, they're important. One of them is, is what I, I think Freud would call a witticism. It's on page 40. He describes, um, this he's, he's he's in the voice of a character who says, "This girl reminds me of Dreyfus. The army doesn't believe in her innocence." <laughs> <laughs> and like, oh my god, this is a joke. It's a it's a misogynistic joke about the Dreyfus affair. Is that what we're doing? Right. Are we doing misogynistic jokes about the Dreyfus affair? Yeah. I guess we are. Yeah. Um, and it's it's terrible. This is the kind of thing that Freud deals out in the form of of humor. And there are other jokes that have, I think greater refinement or greater interest to us. And one of them is about a schnorrer. And I mm-hmm. want to read it because it's about a schnorrer. And that's mm-hmm. a social type that's really important yeah. in Freud's collection of, of Jewish jokes. Incidentally, um, apparently, um, when uh, Wilhelm Fleiss received the interpretation of dreams in manuscript form, one of the things he said to Freud is, too many jokes, too many jokes in this. And I, I have to wonder um, I'm no Freud biographer, but I have to wonder if this doesn't have to do with the genesis of the joke book mm. um, as a way of responding and trying to eke some kind of seriousness out of this thing that Fleece thought wasn't serious enough to have right. an interpretation. Well, so, also because seriousness is important here, right? I mean, there's there's all of this stuff um, about um, the way, like, the condensation, which is another word that... that uh, appears both in in the jokes book and in the interpretation of dreams as one of um, the mechanisms of dream work, right? Condensation is, gives us a certain sort of relief, right? For, for there's, there's again, this sort of like economic dimension to it here of like shortening something 
feels good in some way. And also, our education teaches us to be serious and systematic. And there's something about like the the looseness and associativeness of jokes that allows us to um, kind of throw off, um, you know, he doesn't say it in these words, but sort of like the paternal authority that is is our schooling. And so there is this interesting dimension here of like, and I, I now am, you know, in 2023 looking at this, I keep thinking of that bit from Succession um, where um, the father is like, I love you, but you are not serious people. Yeah. Um, and and it, it is this sort of like Freud is very invested yeah. in himself as a serious person. And seriousness here is also equated with systematicity. And yet what is free association, if not the dismantling yeah. of systematicity, in a way that is systematized. I mean, my my mind is just like it was. It was kind of reeling, yeah. and and also yeah. he has to be serious about jokes, right? And, and but you could also read if you're thinking about that fleece comment of like the bleeding off of the energy of like of the jokes, so that the the interpretation of dreams can be more can be the serious, yeah. Thing. It seems it, it seems <laughs> right. helpful here to exactly. say just on this point, like that that to this notion of like the economic right, it, just to gloss this yeah, term, like do. economic. We, when we we talk about this, it, it maybe kind of ramifies. And we've used the phrase like libidinal economy before on the podcast, right? Economic here is not like about like abstract principles of supply and demand, but rather, or, or like, you know, I don't know, like widgets and Adam Smith factory or some shit. It, 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 economic here, you can understand on on, on like the the Benjamin Franklin, like old school thing where you put an O in front of it, in front of it, like oikonomic, like home economics, right? It's about managing resources and about like uh, parsimony and expenditure, right? You've spilt, you, you've stored up all these like things, these, 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 these jams or something, and now you get to eat them over meals in the winter. You build up to this joke and then you let it go. So it's about can I, efficiency. Can I, can I interject with a sure. quotation that I think is really perfect for... Absolutely. And then I have another one for too. This, so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, the pleasure in a joke arising from a short circuit like this seems to be the greater, the more alien the two circles of ideas that are brought together by the same word. The further apart they are, and thus the greater the economy which the joke's technical method provides in the train of thought. We may notice, too, that here jokes are making use of a method of linking things up with it, which is rejected and studiously avoided by serious thought. Yeah. But you get the, the sense of the economics is also is like, here are these things, they're, they're inhabiting separate spheres, and we have smashed them together by way of like, we're cheating in yeah. some way. Yeah. Um, the hydraulic metaphor is really helpful, yeah. right? right? It's, it's like water doesn't normally go uphill. Right. right. Uh, and that's why when I tell a joke that has a long descended punchline, and I can even think of a couple of jokes which I won't subject to people, where basically the whole thing is building to a punchline, and then the punchline is basically fuck you and, and you don't deliver it, and people <laughs> get really, really angry at you. But like think about that. Like if you're in order to like push water uphill, you have to have a pump. And then at the end it's gonna go down. Right. And it's the controlled buildup and release of that sort of hydraulic flow that, that produces uh, elements of anticipation and pleasure, et cetera. But also, and this is the second thing I wanted to say, this idea of seriousness and this idea of the economic expenditure that's involved in psychic life. I think a thing that Freud believes, and that certainly is also at stake in a very overdetermined way in his correspondences with his sort of 
bromance friend, Wilhelm Fleece, who was another sort of Jewish medical figure and who was also very interested in theorizing the mind, and they both talk back and forth in very unguarded ways before their, their relationship blows up, is, is maintaining a certain posture of seriousness. But not just within the context of them as these two men in, in fin de siècle Vienna who have to represent themselves as serious intellectuals, etc. The other aspect of seriousness that's worth thinking about is this idea that simply being a serious person, like being an adult in the world, takes work. It's yeah. not given. There's this ongoing psychic expenditure in maintaining, in like not laughing at yourself and not falling over, in, in just like pretending that you're a person who has to be taken seriously. It's, it's a life or death type thing. And that that effort, that buildup of pressure, requires some kind of release, otherwise you're going to explode. And this is the kind of, a, a good line, a commentator on, on the book is Sophie de Mayor, who's a psychoanalytic thinker, and her line is here, every successful joke indicates a victory against the inhibition that critical reason imposes on thought in the normal waking state. It's like you can't crack jokes all the time, right? Or like you have to, you have to not see certain things as being funny because you know it'll be socially offensive if you laughed. But at a certain point, if you make a joke about yourself, that's an icebreaker. People will maybe even take you more seriously, but also you'll get a little bit of relief about it. So the idea that, that humor is a way to let this energy that otherwise is being sort of dammed up, let a little bit out and maybe even kind of lubricate some other processes seems really key. And it, as if you've said it too about puns, it's, it's interesting that this is a thing kids get and kids can do and people later in life can also do. But in the middle, when people have to take themselves very seriously, they don't like to do it. You guys have just beautifully reconstructed what I think is the central argument of the book. And the central argument of the book is has to do with um, the phenomenon of repression in everyday life. Yeah. So this is one of Freud's everyday life books. So we're going to try to explain everyday life. We're going to try to explain um, what's going on in specifically modern, but also all cultural life. And part of it is the constant repression that allows us to stay standing up and talking to one another and transacting everyday business and having all kinds of complicated human relationships. And one of the things which involve seeming to take one another seriously in various ways, and this involves, according to Freud, always repressing the ways in which we're aware of what shouldn't be taken seriously, mm -hmm. of what oughtn't to be taken seriously. And um, what happens when we pun and this is admittedly my reading of Freud, Please, is a momentary kind of victory. And in, in Freud's introduction to the book, it ends on this kind of amazing note, which, which is Freud is talking about the universality of jokes, the ways in which jokes are important to all people, the way we want to share them with one another. And he says that we tune into jokes like news of the latest victory. We I'm going to say that again. Oh. We tune into jokes like news of the latest victory. So my question in reading this book again for today was, okay, so if, 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 if a joke is news of the latest victory, what is it victory over? Whose mm -hmm. victory is it? Is it our, it's our victory? Well, it's our victory. It's everybody's victory, apparently. That's what he seems to be saying. But what, what is it a victory over? And the, the, what we're saying here is that it, it might be victory over repression in general, it might be victory over repression in general. We're not sure if that's a good victory to have. Um, but in, in, in fact, um, the, the puns sort of do a version of that. And there's the, the book, um, one of the sections that we read for, the, for this, this conversation is from his section on the technique of jokes. Mm -hmm. And I really want to get to it. In fact, 
I will get to the Schnorrer joke I mentioned earlier, but mm-hmm. first I want to get to this joke. It's okay because, because it's, a long buildup is, yeah. is also an important part of a joke. So you've you've set up that you're going to okay. do a Schnorrer joke, and at some point the punchline will land. This is just this when. is just a, a building a, a buildings up buildings <laughs> up is what we're doing. But I want to talk about how Freud starts the technique of joke section, please, mm. in which he he talks about Heinrich Heine's. Um, Die Bader von Luca, which is actually Heine's Italian pancake cookbook, Die Bader von Luca. Well, um, this really, this really condenses many of your your interests. <laughs> this is it, it is an overdetermined puns, food, food no one writing. Can do it batter. This is yes, batter up, batter up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all right. So, um, sorry. Never I really need I need I need a warning label. I need a warning label. So, so the the the, the what what happens is that in Heine's novel, The Baths of Luca, Die Bade von Luca, Heine is introducing the character, and Freud calls him a delightful figure of the lottery agent and extractor of corns, Hirsch Hyacinth of Hamburg, um, who boasts to the poet um, of his relations with the wealthy Baron Rothschild. And he finally says, and as true as God shall grant me all good things, doctor, I sat beside Solomon Rothschild and he treated me quite as his equal, quite familiarly. And this is, you were referring, Abby, earlier to the, the, the economic principle yeah, at play here. This, and this is, is, this is it. Yeah. This is his mm-hmm. first great example of that economic principle. Yeah. Familiarly and like a millionaire and expressing in the process the fact that, of course, Rothschild can't help but treat this guy with a certain kind of condescension. Yeah. A certain kind of condescension. Um, as the very wealthy naturally treat or seem to treat the rest of us. And um, this is kind of poignant because it's about the certain kind of impossibility of peerdom between these people. And one of them's wishing for a kind of peerdom, but feeling nevertheless diminished. Um, And there's this kind of pathos of a poorer person reaching for the aura of a richer person and wanting to be bathed in that aura here in this joke. And the fact that, in fact, he's angry. Mm-hmm. He's also angry about this relationship at the same time, as, as one often is when presented with disparities of wealth. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Elliot Oring in the, the book, The Jokes of, of Sigmund Freud, uh, is extremely focused on Freud's own debts, Mm. His debts to his family, mm-hmm. his debts to friends, the fact that Freud was constantly in debt as a younger man and, yeah. and never quite paying off many of his debts, and that his relationship with jokes about schnorrers was entirely about this, mm-hmm. that, that he felt himself to be a schnorrer at many points in his career, that he felt himself to have debts that he had to pay or couldn't pay and probably didn't want to pay, you know? um, but that his interest in Jewish humor had something to do with this because Jewish humor has so many jokes about money. Jewish humor has so many jokes about being poor, needing money. And this, this is actually, I don't know if this is an appropriate time or if you guys want to say more about this, but I could read the salmon mayonnaise joke. We've been talking about the the Schnorrer jokes uh, in the tradition of Yiddish jokes. And um, we have one really great example of it that um, Freud gives us on page 50 of the book, um, which is, it's beautiful. And it is about 
food, and I'm just going to read it. And it, a, an impoverished individual borrowed 25 florins from a prosperous acquaintance with many asseverations of his necessitous circumstances. The sa- very same day, his benefactor met him again in a restaurant with a plate of salmon mayonnaise in front of him. And the benefactor reproached him. Thus, what? You borrow money from me and then order yourself salmon mayonnaise? This is an expensive dish, salmon mayonnaise. Is that what you've been using my money for? I don't understand you, replied the object of his attack. If I haven't any money, I mustn't eat salmon mayonnaise. I can't, if, if I have money, I can't eat salmon mayonnaise. Well, when, when am I to eat salmon mayonnaise? Um, and that's the whole joke. And this goes back to uh, the point that we were making earlier that Pat was making about this book not being very funny. Like this isn't, I, I, I don't think the joke about salmon mayonnaise is, is very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I even, I'm trying to pun off of salmon mayonnaise and I'm actually having some trouble. But, but Freud is saying about the salmon mayonnaise that um, there's something about this torturous relationship with money that the Schnorrer has mm-hmm. and with desire and with the desire that you can't fulfill because you don't have the money mm. for it, yeah. um, that the joke allows you to express in some way. And this is a point in the book when I think that Freud might be athwart himself a little bit. And mm. I don't mm-hmm. want to get ahead of us, mm. but one of the things that Freud says in the book um, is that jokes, the content of jokes, the subject of a joke, is much less important than um, laughter itself and nonsense itself. Yeah. That in fact, the joke, this ironic thing about the jokes is that we can have jokes that are misogynistic jokes about the Dreyfus affair. We can have jokes that are um, about schnorrers. We can have, uh, there's a disturbing joke about the fact that cats just happen to have skin in the right shape to let them see. Like, why do cats have eye? Why, why do cats have eye holes? And the whole joke is this rather, it's like odd and macabre, but it's not funny at all, except no. when you think about somebody thinking it's funny. It's just a um, Mitch Hedberg shit almost. It's, it, it gets into that like weird sort of, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so these are like, not very funny. It's not actually an amusing joke. But Freud thinks that the subject of jokes is, is the pretext. It's the justification in reason yeah. for that which is unreasonable. Yeah. yeah. This is, it's worth drawing a parallel here that'll be familiar to some of our readers and the, our listeners and to readers of this book um, in terms of that example of the salmon mayonnaise and, and some other examples of this too, where essentially, and Freud uses this example in the book, the kettle logic example, yeah. right? You borrowed a kettle uh, and then you bring it back broken. And then when confronted about you're having abused the friendship of the person that lent it to you, you offered them a whole series of mutually incompatible protestations. Mm-hmm. Like it was broken when you gave it to me, you never gave it to me at all, actually, et, et, et cetera. They're all mutually incompatible, right? Sure. And I think this is cogent because one, it points to uh, the, well, it's fine. It, it, this functional pretext, right? It doesn't matter. Like you're, you're just producing words the way a squid shoots ink. You just don't want to be responsible for this fucking kettle, right? And you want to eat the salmon mayonnaise, right? But also too, that there's something about the operations of how the psyche goes about doing that that is funny, that's properly speaking amusing, right? The contradictions in light of like realizing that pretext, like you can't but laugh at it. Yeah. And I think that Freud's a little athwart himself because right. in, in some cases, the subject of the joke actually matters a whole lot. Yeah. The yeah. subject of the joke, like the, the topic of the joke matters. So I have here, I have another prop with me. Um, Amazing. Which is a tote bag. 
And it's not the tote bags that we made for the new, the new book, but it's it's a, a tote bag, and you can see it. It's <laughs> Marxism and totality, and it's it's a tote bag made um, on the model of the cover of my doctoral advisor Martin Jay's book, Marxism and Totality. And it, um, just to be clear, it says totality, T O T E, like tote yes. bag. Yes, just because. And what's what's what what makes me laugh about this? Is that the 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 self seriousness of a lot of of Marty's earlier work is 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 is, is flouted here in this mm. beautiful way by this this pun, and now I can carry his book in a tote bag that's modeled on his book, and I think that's funny. Wait, is that why? Okay, so we were talking before um, when we when we were weren't recording about our mutual friend uh, Jordan Stein's book, Avidly Reads Theory. Um, and the thing that it opens with, and I'm so sorry for singing, um, but which is, you can't read Lacan without Hegel. Like, is it is it funny because we're sending up Lacan? Yes, I mean it. it and Hegel, you know, it, I mean, why is that funny every time? Right. It's and it, 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 I, I please sing, please sing. Well, that, Nobody, that was, I did a better job when we when we weren't. Uh. Well, no, because you were because you weren't performing, and uh, like I I I have um I have what I describe as negative music talent musical talent. I, I have the power to make the people around me worse. Like I I'm, I'm tone deaf. I can't sing. I love singing, and I can't do it. And like it's 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 awful. Um, I if there was were any talent, I would I would love to be good at languages and I'd love to be musical. I'm not at all musically talented. Um, I, I'm jealous of those who are. Um, but yeah, Marxism and totality is funny, not because turning tota- the word totality into totality is hilarious, but because if you know the book, it's funny. Yeah, but there's a the reason I'm bringing this up also though is the. Um, with apologies to your doctoral advisor, who I don't know and who seems lovely, you're you're taking him down a peg, right? In the yeah. in the same way that we are also making fun of the self seriousness of saying something like you can't read Lacan without Hegel. Although actually, I do think that's kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, although I don't know that I would say it with a straight face, right? So there is, but there's there's also in that whole thing is taking down a peg the project of taking yourself seriously yes. and the project of being an intellectual at well, all. I mean, this takes us back to um, what we were saying earlier about Freud's seriousness. Now, I will say that that, that Marty J is a mensch. He mm-hmm. is, um, and I should say that he's not only my doctoral advisor, but um, a family friend for over 50 years. He knew my parents in graduate school, and it was one of the many overdetermined things in my life that I would end up growing up and doing a doctorate with Marty. Um, and I, I would take a bullet for him. I love the guy. And I don't um, think you'd carry that tote bag with such obvious joy shining from your face if it were not also an active homage. It, it, exactly. And that it, it's, it's, it's the kind of joke that is facilitated by a personal relation, a loving personal relationship sure. with somebody. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think that we could, I don't think that this book actually needs us to read it this way, but I think we could read it as an opportunity to play around with the ideas of seriousness and play being parts of intellectual mm-hmm. life. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that's one of the places I totally want to go with it. Yeah. Um, um, and it's one of the things that, um, as I think about what I might do in my own writing life with jokes and puns um, and language, 
uh, I'm thinking about. Like, mm-hmm. why do we want to characterize some of the things that we do as serious, and why do we want to characterize some of the things we do as as playful? What are we getting from it? It's, yeah. It seems helpful here to say, well, well, two things, if you don't mind my doing the, like two points again. The first thing is just to tie this into with this stuff we talked about, uh, uh, the hydraulic economic dimensions here, yeah. right? Which is to say that as always with Freud and in this period of his thought specifically, the feelings or intensities or affects, if we want to use that language, that are being both dammed up and repressed, but then given a pathway of release, aren't necessarily... Um, pleasurable in and of themselves. It's not like it's the, the, the joyful laughter of a child that needs to come out sometimes. So that's there too. The idea here is that it's the release or the buildup that is itself pleasurable. It's a structural thing. And what I mean by this specifically, if that sounds sort of vague, is that part of what can come out through jokes that sometimes needs to come out through jokes is aggression. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. Taking down the beloved advisor or like making a joke, like much in the same way as you can love someone, but also like find their foibles annoying or even more annoying the more time you spend with them, having an interaction with them in which you needle them a little bit to let them actually is part of how you relate with them. Like love coexists with these things, but also can sometimes make conversations easier. Right. This is like the self deprecating joke. And it seems here too. It also sets up the grad student as the schnorrer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and so the second the second half of this too, I think is it's an interesting thing, but like I think of without without thematizing this too much, like one thing that is interesting about aggression in terms of aggression of people towards people who seem to be intellectual or intellectual discourse, right? Is something that I think we've encountered in, in doing this podcast. There have been a couple sometimes we've gotten some people being like, Well, these are these are people trying to they're actually deliberately dumbing down what they're saying, or they're trying to they're trying to be funny where there isn't like a funny material, or like there's some sort of like claim that the conversations that we have here are very artificial. Right. Why aren't you both just being the straight man? Yeah. And I mean, I will say, of course, you know, these these conversations are edited. We we try and structure them so that they're, you know, buildups and release and humor sometimes will will be very helpful. But also it's the case that like, I don't know, like this is just like the way I talk, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I, my Twitter yeah. feed is, is, is oftentimes like I'll have like yeah. intrusive thoughts and I'll make them extrusive by putting them on someone else's TL, a timeline, right? Like it, it's like there's going to be the, 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 my tendency to, to, to do like either like um, self-deprecating humor or humor that's layered enough in terms of working in references, some of which are highbrow, some of which are quote-unquote lowbrow, or like the coexistence of vulgarity with like the aesthetically sublime, if you want to use a type of like Rabelaisian language. Like that's just how I am. Yeah. And I have no desire to be anything other than that. And working against it, actually, I think, you know, much in the same way. Swimming upstream, much like a salmon mayonnaise. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Where in fact, what we want to do is run run freely, like a salmon (laughs) salmon mayonnaise on a warm summer's day. Uh, (laughs) Spawn, spawn, Pat, spawn. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Well, the end end of all this is, of course, like that that sort of death drive moment where all the salmon fuck and then die. But, um, that's either here or there. I think just to, to point to this, like like this idea that Freud is doing something both disarming mm-hmm. in terms of being so making all these jokes, you know, and it's also overdetermined too because he seems to be like, well, here are these jokes about my people that I can make, which you can't, but right. also this credentializes me as a more general and universal public intellectual. I think he even says this at some points. I will tell a Jewish joke, but this has a value that's more broadly human, etc. Yeah, right. But also, it does seem to be this way in which, like, 
we, we feel a certain anxiety or insecurity vis-a-vis one another for many different reasons. Is right. that that's a general statement? I think it's a like general statement. Yeah, people, pe- not like we, the three of us. I think. Well, I, I think we're all fairly neurotic. If you don't mind my saying it, but, I but, don't. Um, <laughs> but I think people in general, right? And and, and then and, just toasted to us with a coffee cup. And there's like tension in that, right? We have anxieties about like this other person know more than us, this other person, etc. Like, what are they going to do? And I think that the ability to laugh at yourself or make a joke is. Or to, you know, deflate someone with a, in a way that's not necessarily cruel, but also sort of like humanizes them is, is necessary. That actually can allow for connection to happen. Well, I think this is also something that, and that uh, this is a, just a kind of flyaway comment here, but uh, Ben brought this up earlier and I think it's really important. Um, and I think Ben brought it up and like, we can talk about this or not. And I'm like, no, I, I think we should is that, there is the figure of the child is actually quite yeah. important in um, in jokes in their relation to the unconscious. Um, and while a lot of this book is generally, I would say it's quite unfunny, right? I think we're all kind yeah. of agreed on that. It is where, where it kind of hooks me a little bit. And yes, that was a joke about the salmon is it has a sort of poignant dimension about like the, the loss of fun as one not only grows up inevitably as we all do, but as one becomes educated. Yeah. Um, And so there's, you know, to go back to what you're saying, Patrick, you know, we lose the sort of like, like obvious in English, like family relationship between the word fun and the word funny, you know, from, from my perspective, like if I am not having fun reading a book, like I want to stop reading it. Yeah. In so, I mean, but I, I don't mean it in that sort of just like childhood glee kind of thing. But like, that's what like to be very earnest and not at all trying to be funny. Like, that's very much how I think about like how to convey information to other people. Like my vision of yeah. education actually is involves holding on to that fun, free associative dimension of it. Um, and, and I think we get that from Freud. Abby, to what, to what you're saying, I mean, there is, in fact, passage that's about <laughs> joking around at a scientific conference. Yeah. That's what the passage is about. Yeah. And I, as you, were, as you were, were talking, I was thinking about that passage, and Freud is really interested not only in the pathos of the child acquiring reason and not being as fun anymore, not having yeah. pleasure anymore, but also in what might happen when you go to a scientific congress is this, this phrase and, yeah. and find yourself wanting to blow off steam afterwards. Yeah. And what Pat, you were saying earlier about the humanization element, of course, for many self-serious adults, that's the role of, hu- of, of humor is to render oneself somewhat more accessible and humanized in mm-hmm. various ways. Um, and but also, for, and it's not just so strategic. Freud is mm-hmm. telling us it's not just so strategic. It often is that strategic for academics who want to tell you about their hobbies. They're trying to present themselves as human yeah. beings. It's completely cynical. But there is, Freud is saying, at these meetings, a need to blow off some steam yeah. because mm-hmm. everybody has been pretending that what they're doing together matters so damn much. Yeah. But I guess I just am thinking that, and, and when I said before, I, I'm really speaking off the cuff here. So obviously, like you're in 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 one's life as an intellectual, not all the the subject matter of everything you're reading is not going to be fun. Sometimes you're well. reading for for information. You're reading in 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 these very you know sort of like uh, 
schematic sorts of ways. But I also think there's something like fun is what makes certain things indelible. Yes. Like fun is linked to memory. Fun is linked to play. Um, the sever, there's something awful that happens when um, the severing of play and fun from education is the primary mode in which we conceive of intellectual activity. Yeah. Think about, I think just if, if I could, it's worth saying, like there's this line in the Freud, right, which is uh, kind of lovely, but where pleasure and nonsense, as we may call it for short, is concealed in serious life to a vanishing point. In order to demonstrate it, we must investigate two cases, one in which it is still visible and one in which it becomes visible again. The behavior of a child in learning and that of an adult in a toxically altered state of mind. Right. And, and this idea there, I mean, there's, this is, that's for a nutshell, right? This idea that we regress or we always contain children within us. And, but also too, like I think about, you know, one of the things that happens at academic conferences generally, you know, which can be a little bit annoying if you don't drink, if people drink, right. Or that line, like a psychoanalyst one told me, like, that's why God, like a psychoanalyst invented alcohol so we can talk to one another, like disinhibitedly too. But that idea too, of the child learning through humor. Like I think about like the little, little rituals or mnemonics that you would, or songs you would come up with as a kid, or even too like these encounters that you might have. The image I have is of like a child laughing at dad jokes at like groaners, right? There's a period of time in which the child will find them funny. And the adult who is, you know, troped in this as, as the dad who is otherwise supposed to be very serious makes these jokes that they couldn't make at the workplace. Right. That they, but that are childlike in some way, the kid finds them funny the dad finds them funny through the pretext of the child and seeing the child laughing at them. And then at a certain point, the child will be like, that's not funny or just start groaning. Right. And, and it's almost like it's at the point at which the child wants to become an adult and starts and wants to be taken seriously and doesn't want to be addressed with, with, with dad jokes that they also get, they get angry at it, but also they get angry at the fact that their dad could be someone who is behaving in a childlike way. And there's that loss of that kind of capacity for connection. And it's, it's not the same as like having like a gesture, a jester in a King's court who can say the thing. It's not structural or intentional in quite the same way. It's not savvy or canny, but it is this ground where people meet and yeah. where you remember things about people or you do things that are memorable or make memories together. That seems so crucial. Well, it's part of the family drama. I mean, it's, it, it, it's part of, it, it becomes something that mediates the relationships between children and their parents. I mean, the, the, uh, oh, yeah, the Japanese word, oyaji gyagu, translates almost perfectly to dad jokes. It's old guy jokes. Yeah. Um, but Abby, what you were saying earlier reminded me somewhat of the seriousness of musicians, mm. even when they're playing silly music. Mm-hmm. I was just suddenly thinking about how hard it is to play music well. Mm. how much focus and and seriousness of intent playfulness of purpose like they can be they can go hand in hand yeah uh, in some in, in some contexts i have this i am i am like a a a a, a, a raving fanboy for this contemporary vocal ensemble called roomful of teeth and what roomful of teeth does is contemporary composed music, much of it really wild, weird. And they, they, they yodel and they do tube and throat singing and they do all kinds of weird shit in mm-hmm. their performances. 
And it's incredibly serious and incredibly silly at the same time. And it was just, I was just remembering their music as you were talking. Like actually, there is something very beautiful um, aesthetically, but also revelatory of something about the way in which um, purpose and play can work together yeah. that we see in certain moments in our lives. And I think that that what musicians do is one picture of that, I guess. Yeah. So, so what I want to, what I want to ask, so maybe I'm, I'm, I may love this book a little bit too much, despite <laughs> it being not very funny. And what I wanted to, to ask you guys really is I wanted to pose my question again Please. about Freud, Freud starts in the introduction. He says, well, well, sometimes people trade around new jokes as if it were the news of a victory and a, a news of a victory that seems to be for everyone. And I wanted to ask you guys, what might that be victory over? I think I'm going to, if you don't mind, I think I'm going to, this is a, I'm going to, I have an associate, a series of associations here that I'm going to unpack, but I think this is again, we, another thing people have said in their feedback about the podcast is like, they don't state their points up front. They kind of build to them. It's like, they've got some sort of deferred action going on here. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what it's I'm called deference. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. You know, one thing that's also happening with like the grad school humor that we make or the professorial humor is like, and the Simpsons are not wrong about this, is what we're doing is we're bonding over... Yeah, that's just trauma bonding. That's trauma bonding, right? This, these, these are basically I'd be like, oh, wow, we made the terrible life choices where these jokes mean something, or at least we because we think they're jokes, we've decided that they must be meaningful, <laughs> right? Or, or like the jokes make... Them, but that's that's neither Yeah, no, there. it is true. Yeah. It's like our version of scatological humor yeah. is making jokes about... Uh, like deconstruction. Why well, do scatological humor too? I mean, like, like I, Freud says, like the reason we tell well, jokes to one another is we can't tell them to ourselves. Yeah, well, I, I, that's fine. That's my that's my role. <laughs> that's that, that's I, the I, scatological I, imperative. You're, you're, Jesus <laughs> Christ. I mean, but there is this kind of thing going on here where, where it's like you, you have to tell jokes to other people because you can't tell them to yourself. And like, I laugh my own jokes all the fucking time. Like, this is the best. Like, I actually why not, hear same, Patrick same. on a different floor laughing at his own jokes sometimes. Oh, okay. no, this is, and this is actually, I, I have to say, this is not the first time that I've heard a male partner say this and the female partner say that. <laughs> like, I think it's a pattern in, 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 in relationships. Well, I laugh at my own jokes also. I like, I feel like it's important for me to, 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 to find my own company entertaining, but I can specifically hear Patrick making this cackling noise. And I know he's writing a tweet. Yeah. Generally. Oh, it's a tweet no. that, yeah. yeah, I, I absolutely. And there, also, you know, um, a- any of us who've co- cohabited for a long time, know about knowing each other's sounds. Yeah. yeah. And like, that's, that's a classic one. Generally it's a tweet that like, I mean, it's a tweet that's really layered enough where it's like, this is, I'm not sure if anyone's going to get this, but I don't give a fuck. So it's, it's, <laughs> yes. it's like, most of, like a lot of my Twitter content is just for me. arrive at its destination? Yeah. Who can say? But immediately, no, immediately I know, right, exactly. become funny to me. I, I mean, yeah. But no, I mean, I, I am going to tweet about this, my new recipe, the sheep of Theseus, which is made with beef. I'm totally going to do it. <laughs> exactly, and it's like you heard some, it here first. sometimes it lands, sometimes it doesn't. But the but that ambiguity allows you to be amused at it. In which, like, if I was writing it in like a fucking trapper keeper diary or something, I wouldn't, you know. But but, but this is neither here nor there. I'm thinking about this, the the victory thing. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let me just put something on the table here. I invoked Baudelaire earlier, mm-hmm. right? And, and Baudelaire is, is relevant here as I think probably the first. Uh, the, one of the prominent theorists of, of, of humor and modernity and the philosophy of humor, right? And, and for Baudelaire, the idea of, it's, it's very proto-psychoanalytic in this way. The, the prototypical scene of laughter is somebody else face-planting and you laugh. 
and you laugh, you don't even necessarily think about it, right? It just comes out. You bark with laughter, right? And um, that is a, for him, what he basically says is, when you're walking, walking is actually, when we think about it, a weird fucking thing to do. People look pretty weird walking. If you want to like, if you, if you want to put like your um your osteopath hat on and like watch people as they do their gates, you're like, wow, this is like weird. Or think about like Asimo the robot and how hard it is to design him and how that fucker keeps face planting and how funny it is. Because actually, you know, walking isn't like a thing you can narrate easily. It's it's kind of like a joke. You do it right, and actually, it's a sort of controlled falling that continually moves itself. In other words, we're always sort of walking in our bodies. We're always sort of walking these tight ropes. It's hard, and then. And we're always kind of worried that we're going to fall over on some level. And then when some other person falls over, you can't help but laugh, right? So there's a kind of cruelty there, but it's a, it's a cruelty that's underwritten by kind of existential anxiety about our own appearing serious, about our own sort of being in control of our faculties, et cetera. But it is very much a cruelty, right? I think you're about like, you know, sometimes some things are very funny. Imagine like that time, or maybe some of us may recall that time George W. Bush like fell over right? Or like people training memes of Biden falling over, like watch, look at this self-serious fucker. Or like imagine like seeing like the Pope like do it. I, I don't know. So someone, so some elaborate ceremony where someone in all these like absurd outfits suddenly just keels over and does a prat fall, right? This is like the most basic kind of punch and Judy humor, right? And you know, Baudelaire, it, Baudelaire or Freud might even say this exposes the uncanniness of like the way in which we're puppets being held up by invisible strings. And then suddenly, boom, it all falls over, right? There's a cruelty there that sometimes is authorized by, you know, seriousness, right? Like I'm watching someone else who's supposed to be the center of attention, supposed to be very together, fuck up, is funny. But also too, I think about how I've I've actually encountered this in some situations where people, that involuntary aspect of it has a a kind of unpleasantness, a kind of nastiness to it, right? I think about a a friend um, who actually was, um, was, 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 been, had been diagnosed with MS and at one point had a, had a, had a sort of a spell where they fell over in, in a public space and people started laughing at her because they thought she was drunk, right? Where it's, it, it, so that, that there's an edge to it, right? Where you don't necessarily know why this other person is, is making this mistake. You don't, or seems to be making what appears to be a mistake or why this other person, the vulnerability of the other becomes a space where we can consolidate or, or discharge our own anxieties about our own vulnerability and that actually has a nastiness to it. There's a cruelty to it. But what I think Freud is getting at and what I think your question opens up for me and that seems distinct from the Baudelaire stuff, right? Because for Freud, aggression is never just on its own. It always exists with love or with some, something else too. Is the victory maybe like over the forgettability of things or over like the gravity that pulls us downwards, right? It, it's the victory of someone else said something funny that made me stop what I was doing in this very habitual routinized way and suddenly I laughed at them. Like humor in this way is like a type of grace or like a gracefulness that goes against the grain of the entropy and shittiness and cruelty of things. And so when that's the victory there, it's, it's like a, I existed, I did something funny, I did it deliberately, or maybe I didn't do it deliberately, but I shared it with people afterwards and they got to laugh too. And for one brief moment, we had this sort of connection. I, I, that's probably a recuperative reading of Freud, but I like it. I don't know. Patrick, I think that it's, beautiful and I, I'm game for it. And the word grace, the idea of the resistance to gravity, it, it, it all makes me think of this um, old Steve Martin gag in which he says that he, he tells the audience, I think this was on an old Steve Martin record, um, he's, I have a new hobby. I've been learning to juggle. 
in my mind. Oops. <laughs> Dropped one. <laughs> and it's, it's that, that, that whole idea. Okay, okay. I mean, I think that, like, I love, you know, the permission to be stupid is something that, mm. that, that I, I, I give myself. When I pun on Twitter or in my life or anywhere, I'm just giving myself permit. I'm 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 a dork. I'm a big Muppety dork. Okay, this is great. And I think that that there's a way in which the victory here is over. Um, you know, Freud doesn't use the word entropy, but I think that is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, okay, Ben, speaking of your Twitter puns, some of my favorites are about food. You are a food writer um, among your your many other talents. Um, and both Patrick and I are very excited about your forthcoming book, Ways of Eating, um, which is co-authored with your mother, Mary White. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this book and also what it was like to write it with your mom because this is a psychoanalysis podcast and our listeners are definitely want to hear about that. Abby, thank you so much for the question. Um, this is a really fun one to answer. And um, the the slow buildup on, on this one is that, um, so I was raised by an anthropologist of contemporary Japan, my mother, Mary, uh, uh, nicknamed Corky White, and my father, Louis Wergaft, who... Um, uh, was an intellectual and cultural historian who became a psychotherapist and and recently retired from his practice as a psychotherapist. Um, they're both they and their respective partners are still in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, I uh, about a little over a decade ago started writing with my mother a short book that would be a guide to world food history. That's what we were commissioned to mm-hmm. write and. That project in various ways collapsed and we were faced with the impossibility of writing a whole book that would be a short introductory volume on world food history. It was a project that seemed in certain respects almost colonial in its ambitions and that we just didn't feel like we should be writing. But what we arrived at was a book that would be a guide to how to do food history and food anthropology and contain in it a series of chapters that would lead you from the origins of agriculture to the present through what I believe to be the most pivotal developments in world food history. Mm -hmm. So there is, in a sense, an effort to give people something that's encompassing and that could tell you what you need to know to, to understand what's become of food systems in the world. But it's also a guide to anthropological uh, observation of foodways. Um, it's a guide, I think, to how to think about some of the major historical problems, major interpretive problems in food history, which have to do with a wide variety of things. Some of them are anthropological and have to do with culture. Some of them are, are biological and have to do with events like the Columbian Exchange, the sort of which shaped modern kitchens essentially around the world, this exchange of biological organisms, including plague microbes (laughs) between uh, the Americas, Europe, Africa, Asia, um, beginning with uh, uh, Christopher Columbus's voyage. So so the book 
is, as the title would suggest, um, an homage to John Berger's 1972 Ways of Seeing, mm. which was itself an effort to render some of the lessons of Walter Benjamin's work uh, on the work of art in the age of its mechanical reproducibility, uh, to, to bring those insights to bear on the culture of contemporary art museums. And in a certain sense, we're trying to bring the insights of anthropology and um, historiography to bear on food. Now, um, what was it like to do this with my mom? Um, my mother is um, a wonderful ethnographer and anthropologist and writer, and um, is also in a past life of hers a caterer and cookbook author. She was mentored by Julia Child in the 1970s. And mm. um, she, uh, and I, for my part, completely washed out of working in restaurants in my late teens, early twenties. I was shitty at it and um, parlayed that food work experience into a sideline as a food writer when I was in graduate school for intellectual history at Berkeley. So, so um, that's my, my thin excuse for cred here, but um, uh, I've been writing about food for about 20 years. My mother has been writing about food for a lot longer and we found ways to put our heads together that I think never brought us into a great deal of conflict, but we were, for, we were basically the beneficiaries of the fact that we had both been working through our various conflicts together for decades by the time we got to the project. And I was a grown adult and um, the question was really not um, what are the psychodramas that we're enacting here? Although there's always room for more of those, but rather um how do we bring our respective abilities to the forefront? And um, I'm more boring and less fun than my mother. Um, uh, and also a little bit more of a manager of names and dates and more bookish and scholarly in my way. And she has this incredible wealth of experience and insight. Um, and we wanted to bring both into the project. So the project moves between chapters that are more historical and explanatory of major historical developments in food and um, vignettes that are ethnographic and that each of them explains a kind of interpretive dilemma in food anthropology or a technique, like how do you use all your senses? What's it like to do mm -hmm. anthropology mm -hmm. through smell? Or what's the, what's the deal with culinary authenticity? What's the deal with the fetish of culin culinary yeah. authenticity? So that's that's the that's the book, and we're we're super proud, I think, of the results, and it's um, dropping on internationally recognized Abby's birthday in September, um, <laughs> and um, we're really looking forward to it. Oh, I'm so excited for it. Um, I should say that that Ways of Eating is available for pre-order now. While we are waiting for that to drop, where can people read you, Ben? Um, whether it is on puns or food or any other recent writing. Oh yeah. Thank you. Um, if people are interested in puns and humor and Freud, um, I try to bring those themes together in uh, an essay called the punning of reason, which appeared, I believe in 2020, um, in the times literary supplement. And that that's available. I'll put it in um, the show I also, I wrote a, review for the Los Angeles Review of Books on, um, and this is actually a great pun, my editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books, Evan Kindley, found the best possible title for a book review of a, of a book about the psychoanalytic couch, which I wrote 
This is in the LA Review of Books years ago. And Evan gave it the title, The Recline of the West, which I think is the the great title. (laughs) Um, And um, uh, it's not my pun, not my original. But um, And then I also uh, reviewed Hannah Zevin's um, uh, Distance Cure for Book Forum uh, just about a year ago, which uh, listeners can tune into. I've written a great deal for the Los Angeles Review of Books um, on food and other topics. Um, but really, LA Review of Books, Book Forum, um, uh, Hedgehog Review, Aeon, I've written for a lot of uh, familiar forums, uh, I think, for listeners. Um, and I've written a few books as well uh, and uh, a few academic articles. But uh, in my intellectual history life, I'm usually a historian of philosophy and social thought rather than of psychoanalysis. If people want to follow you on Twitter or the for platform your, formerly known as Twitter. For or, your puns. Yeah. And uh, for, for instance, the Sheep of Theseus may have dropped by the time this, uh, this yeah. episode. Yeah, no, the Sheep oh, wait, of I'm Theseus. Sorry, the, ship of Theseus, the Sheep of Theseus may have sailed by the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid that the drops. sheep of Theseus, this is like Ozymandias and the Watchmen. I'm not a Republic serial villain. I, I launched the sheep, the sheep of Theseus pun days ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, please, by all means, uh, I, I am present on Twitter uh, in ways mostly silly and every once in a while, slightly serious. But how, what's the handle bag? <laughs> oh, sorry. What's the handle? I, 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 I don't even know. I don't even know. No, but Pat, I don't even name. know my Twitter handle. Yeah, I think it's, it's Ben Wurgat. Okay. I think <laughs> I'm just Ben Wurgat. <laughs> um, this has been such a delight. Really um, I'm almost certainly going to have a dream about salmon mayonnaise in <laughs> the coming week. Ben, thank you so much really, thank for you. being no, with thank us you today. Guys. I, this has been this has been such a wonderful moment of fellowship. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I um, it's been such a joy to join you guys. I've yeah been learning from each of you for for years in different ways and it's it's such a pleasure to get to join you in conversation this has been an episode of ordinary unhappiness a podcast about psychoanalysis politics pop culture and the ways we suffer now I'm Abby Kluchin, and today I was joined by Patrick Blanchfield and Ben Wergaft. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell. Theme music by Formal Chicken. <laughs>